Welcome to From Russia with Blood, your source of gruesome, highly disturbing, and unbelievable but true crime stories from behind the Soviet curtain. Join our investigation as we go into the shadows to cast light on the nightmarish darkness of the Soviet past, if you dare. The episode you are about to hear contains material of an explicit sexual and criminal nature that some listeners may find extremely disturbing. This podcast is not suitable for minors. Please proceed at your own discretion. You are about to listen to part two of Tamara. For the complete experience, we recommend listening to part one before continuing. Tamara's whole life had been driven by the desire to get as rich as possible, as quickly as possible, and by any means necessary. And being seen as rich in the Soviet Union meant owning a car. In the Soviet Union, having one's own car put you at the pinnacle of material wealth and acquisition. A car, comrades, is not a luxury, but a means of transportation. So said the protagonist of the 1931 Soviet satiric novel, The Golden Calf. Everyone in the USSR had read the novel, and until the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, this ironic line from the novel perfectly summed up the state of the Soviet automotive industry. A personal car remained a luxury. At the time, the Soviet automotive industry produced an insufficient number of personal cars of various classifications and of universally poor quality. The lowest grade make was the Ukrainian Zaporozhets, a little sedan with an air-cooled engine placed in the rear of the vehicle. Next was the Moskvich, produced both in Moscow and in Izhevsk, a town otherwise known for its armament factories. The Moskvich offered several models, but still remained a vehicle not particularly desirable, even in the barren Soviet car market. One level up was the Italian-designed Lada. Now, this was something to want. An almost European-level car, with the four-wheel-drive off-road Neva among its models. Some of the models were even exported to Europe. But the dream of all amateur drivers, as car owners were known in the USSR, was something else entirely. A Gaz Volga 24, the second generation of Volga, was a highly desired personal car. It was arguably the most reliable Soviet car, 
the result of good design and high-quality control procedures. All the state-owned taxi companies use them. Some were designed for use as ambulances. The police use them. Special models with a high-power engine were available for the KGB, something that allowed them to keep up with the high-speed American cars used by some foreign diplomats. All party and state institutions had a garage of Volgas. Black. If you were in a black Volga, it meant you were really someone. Also available were a sedan and a Volga Sarai. The Volga Sarai was something like a deluxe station wagon with a massive cargo area, hence the tool shed appellation in its nickname. Each Soviet cosmonaut, after a successful flight, was not only awarded the Golden Star of Hero of the USSR, but was also presented with a Volga. They even had special license plates so that the traffic police would know that the car was driven by a Soviet hero. If you can imagine a cross between the classic 1970s U.S. models, the Ford Falcon and the Plymouth Valiant, then you can picture the Volga Gaz 24. Tamara absolutely craved to own that Volga. To buy a car, one needs money. Tamara learned very quickly that the Soviet state did not want its people to earn a lot, and so she started looking into alternative methods. Tamara tried her hand at what was known as speculation in the USSR. In the West, the Soviet term speculation can be expressed by the phrase buy cheap, sell dear. Yet in the USSR, only the state had the right to do it. If an individual tried it out on their own, it was considered a criminal offense. And Tamara did, and she was caught, and she was punished. In those days, a person with a criminal record could not get a job anywhere near children. So Tamara forged a labor record, a little book every person in the USSR had, which contained a record of all the places of work of the holder. In 1986, she managed to get a job as a dishwasher in Kiev School No. 16. It was not for the money that she went to work there. Soviet children... Like children everywhere, were notorious for preferring sweets to wholesome foods. And the school canteen cooked wholesome food, which means lots of what was cooked was also thrown away. After Tamara had moved into her house, she could keep livestock, unlike in a typical residential urban apartment. In fact, she kept 10 pigs and 150 chickens. 
That is a lot of hungry mouths to feed. Every day, Tamara would take them home a wheelbarrow filled with buckets of food waste. When Tamara first came to work at the school, her colleagues quite liked her, but she kept coming into the kitchen, and that was strictly against sanitary regulations. When told off, Tamara became angry and conflicts flared up. In retaliation, Tamara would not only use the waste, but she would also steal food from the canteen. Or she would turn off the fridge in the evening so that in the morning everything that was kept there would spoil and thus eventually get transferred to her waste buckets. Tamara absolutely despised the children who actually ate all they were given. And she hated the teachers who made the students finish up their food. Soon, everyone who came into conflict with Tamara started having problems. Case number one. The chief of the school unit of the Communist Party, Yekaterina Sherben, who caught Tamara stealing food several times and started to look for another candidate to wash the dishes, well, Comrade Sherben later died in hospital. Case number two. Two children, a brother and a sister, came up to Tamara and asked for leftover meatballs and chicken bones to feed to their pet at home. The next day, the two children were taken to the hospital. The dose of the poison, though, was minuscule, and the children survived. Case number three. In March 1987, Tamara wanted to get rid of the head of the canteen, so she put poison into his dish of soup. Yet the man got busy talking to the cooks, the soup got cold, he poured it back into the pot and took a hot portion for himself instead. On that day, 16 children and adults were taken to the hospital from the school, of which two children and two adults died. To the local authorities, this was an extraordinary health emergency. All the patients displayed the same symptoms, loss of feeling in their hands and feet, and severe joint aches. And they were losing their hair. It was 1987, less than a year after the catastrophe at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant not far from Kiev. And the people who had been exposed to radiation at the plant had also lost their hair. So, the first theory doctors came up with was that some radioactive food had been used at the school canteen. Another theory was a stomach flu outbreak. A flu in March would have been extremely unusual, and the radiation levels at the school proved normal. It was turned over to the police to come up with their own theories. A crime scene was declared. 
The head of the investigation was a senior officer named Nikolai Padubny, later to gain promotion to the rank of two-star police general. Each school had a medical officer who was in charge of, among other things, controlling food quality. When presented with the list of all employees who had access to the kitchen, Padubny was surprised to find one name missing from the list. And he was informed that the medical officer, the otherwise young and healthy Natalia Kukharenka, had suddenly died just two weeks prior. It was also discovered that all the people who became ill ate soup and chicken liver. Also, all the victims of the unknown illness got sick after all the others had eaten. Their turn in the lunch queue had come later in the day. Investigators at the scene of the crime examined every inch of the kitchen and soon became aware of Tamara's strange behavior. Although she had had nothing to do in the kitchen itself, she followed the officers everywhere in their search, carefully studying their every move as though she was afraid that they would steal something. Tamara was also very rude and refused to, as the saying goes, assist the police with their inquiries. A friend of the recently deceased medical officer, Kucharenka, remembered that before she died, Kucharenka had complained of strange symptoms. The loss of feeling in her hands, very cold feet, and aching knees. She had also begun losing her hair. Yet the final diagnosis the doctors came up with was heart failure. The police did not like the sound of it. An exhumation order was issued. The body of Yekaterina Sherban, who before death had also complained of pain in her legs and a loss of hair, was also exhumed. And so was the body of Tamara's first husband and forensic experts found that the three bodies contained the same poison, thallium. And thallium and its compounds are known for their extreme toxicity. Historical evidence and mystery authors alike popularize the notion that poison is a woman's weapon. And probably the most famous poisoner was Catherine de' Medici. Incidentally, an Italian name came up in this case, too. Clerici. Clerici's solution is one of the densest liquids known. It is used in mineralogy and gemology to separate minerals. Garnet, diamond, and corundum all float in a saturated clerici solution. The solution is colorless and odorless. It is made of thallium formate and thallium malinate. And the Maslinka family, it turned out, had a friend who worked as a lab assistant in a mineralogical institute 
and had access to Clarice's solution. At first, she would provide them with a solution to use as rat poison, which they also did. But later, they decided that the target audience could be widened. A vial with the poison was found by chance in Tamara's house. During the house search, an officer noticed a tiny bottle with what looked like lubricant next to a sewing machine and was surprised by how heavy the little thing was. One piece of evidence led to another, and... And at the trial, Tamara did not hide her motives. She declared openly that she had added poison to children's food because they behaved badly and refused to return chairs next to their tables. I decided to punish them, Tamara said. Teachers, too, got poisoned because they made children finish up their food, which left fewer leftovers for Tamara's livestock. Besides, Tamara said a series of poisonings should have created a feeling of mistrust among the children so that less food would be eaten, resulting in more leftovers for her. Tamara described her tests on her neighbors' cats and chickens as systematic and objective. You can leave nothing to chance in this business, she explained. She carefully established lethal doses, as well as doses sufficient for just a slight sickness. The sufferings of her victims did not affect her emotionally in the least. A psychiatric evaluation of Tamara Ivanyutina was carried out. She was pronounced sane, but she was also described as an extremely vindictive and cruel person who regarded everyone as an enemy. Tamara was not tried alone. She shared the dock with her parents and sister, a whole family of poisoners. Tamara's sister, Nina, was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Her parents, Anton and Maria, got 10 years and 13 years, respectively. Both died of old age in prison. Nina was granted parole after several years. After that, all trace of her is lost. Tamara was sentenced to death. In her final speech, Tamara proclaimed that all her confessions were forced from her by the police, that she was innocent, and that she was very sorry she never managed to buy herself a Volga. At the end of 1987, after all the shouting and spitting and abuse directed at her during her trial, Tamara was executed. She was the last convicted female to be executed in the USSR. You have been listening to an episode of From Russia with Blood. It has been carefully researched and produced for you by the Hamovniki brothers. No matter how you found us or what interests brought you here, we're grateful to you for giving us your time. 
and please keep listening. From Russia with Blood is entirely listener-supported. Go to coffee.com forward slash FWRB, that's ko-fi.com forward slash FWRB for more information. Contributors get exclusive access to episode scripts and extras, including Hamovniki Zastalon, informal reflections, conversations, and insights into the culture of the times. You can follow From Russia with Blood on your preferred podcast platform for more unbelievably gruesome and previously unknown stories of true crime from behind the Soviet curtain.